I was transparent during Sunday school a little bit on this message this morning, and this message is not the typical type style message I like to preach. Uh, it's going to be a very topical study this morning. Uh, and that's simply because as we're talking about unlocking the Bible, uh, there comes a point in which we got to apply everything, right? There has to be an application day. And uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of theology handed out today as far as new content or a passage of scripture we're going to mine out. We're not going to go back to uh, the parable of the two foundations, the sand and the rock. We're not going to look any deeper into that. But what I am going to do is I'm going to prep you for what we're going to get into next Sunday, Lord willing. And starting in, in July, we're going, or the end of June here, into July, we're going to begin mining out the book of Jude. We're going to take the book of Jude and we're going to go verse by verse, content by content, and we are going to look at one of what I would argue one of the most apropos books for our time period in which we live today. The book of Jude is it. And you say, how can a little book have that much power? Well, come the next several Sundays and we'll begin to show you why this book has so much power. And we'll show you the, the triple triples in there. We'll show you all the different little nuances. And then we'll even talk about how Second Peter and the book of Jude are really parallel books. They're saying the same thing. What Jude summarizes, Peter woefully goes into detail on and really begins to mine out what that looks like in the culture in which we live today. So these two books, we're going to look at them kind of together, but Jude is going to be our main focus. So I want you, as we go through today, to... Think through, I'm going to give you the tools you're going to need to mine out what we're going to be doing for the next month and a little longer as we begin to mine out the book of Jude. So uh, this morning, I want to give you the tools and I want to talk about why in the world do we have so many translations of the Bible today? And how, how, why do they exist and how do we get them and why are they there? Are some of them just bogus? Are some of them really good? How do I know which one is good and which one is bad? Well, we're going to give you the theology, okay? You're going to get theology this morning. You're just not going to get it from a specific passage. We're going to kind of be all over the place. So uh, I'm going to give you as many verses as I can on the screen. If this morning you're trying to keep notes, I apologize now. Uh, there's not really notes for this one as much as there's going to be a lot of information just given to you this morning by way of application. However, hopefully by the end of this, and if you need to go back and catch this, go online, go on the website. Uh, you'll be able to watch this. You'll be able to pause and grab the screenshots if you're not able to write down all these things. And if you're really nice to me for a small cost, probably like a Reese's or something, uh, I might even give you some of my notes, Okay. Uh, I can be bribed that way. But this morning, I want us to take the very practical things, okay? We learned what the plot of the Bible is, right? This book is all about one person. Who is it? Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, it's about it's the story of Jesus Christ and God's love story, how he loved us so much that he gave Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is creator. He's also the finisher. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And for the joy that was before him, he took the cross for us. It was a joy for Jesus to go to the cross. And this book tells us that story from Genesis and creation to revelation when we're with him forever and all of eternity. And in this book, there's different ways that we can interpret this book. We can do it inductively 
and we can do it deductively. What is the difference? Do you remember? Deductive says, I have an opinion, I have thoughts about what the Bible says, and I'm going to find verses and texts that prove my thoughts. Is that good or bad? It's going to lead to error at some point, right? At some point, I can make the Bible say whatever I want it to say. Judas went out and hanged himself, go and do the law likewise. Are both scripture? Are they in the same context? No. So any text out of context is a pretext for heresy. So we have to be very careful when we go to the Bible and try to make it say what I want it to say. I have a pet sin. I'm going to justify my sin. So I'm going to go in the Bible. I'm going to find verses that support my sin, ignoring, right, all the other passages that speak against what I'm doing. So I can kind of pick and choose what I want the Bible to say. However, there is an inductive study way, and that is this. I come to the Bible with no presupposed opinion. I take it for what it says. I look at the words. I dig into the words. I figure out what the Bible is actually saying. And then I interpret it and I apply it to my life. Now, what are the odds you're going to get biblical teaching out of that? Pretty good. If you go through, the word of God is written in what? Words. If you study the words, what are the odds you're going to know what the words say? If you know what the word says, you can properly interpret it in a passage of scripture. And then that passage, once interpreted correctly, you can apply to your life. So how, what are the three methods for doing inductive study? Do you remember? OIA, right? Observation, interpretation, application. All right, so we have observed, we've interpreted, and now I've got to teach you how to apply it. And that's what today's going to be. Today is the application stage. What are tools, what are some things that we can use as we study the Bible so that we know what we're studying, we know what we actually have. And I was going to bring all these books up here today, but then I realized how big the stack was going to be, so I didn't. And then I'd have to put them all back in my library and I didn't want to do that. So I'm going to tell you what they are. We know the Bible's divided, or the Bible consists of 66 books, right? 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. Uh, all of these books are about who? Jesus Christ. So from Genesis to Revelation, we know that we're talking about Jesus Christ. Within these 66 books, and within the group of 39 and 27, we have some subdivisions in there, right? The Old Testament, it consists of several types of literature. There are Old Testament books that are the law, or we call them the Pentateuch. What does Penta mean? Five, right? So the Pentateuch are the first five books of the Bible. These are the books of law. Then we transition into history. Then we run into poetry. Um, and we'll talk about some translations when it comes to poetry. Um, what books are poetry? How about Psalms? How about Proverbs? Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. These are your poetry books. We got the major prophets because they're big, right? And we have minor prophets because they're small. Uh, does that mean they're insignificant because they're minor and the others are more significant because they're major? No, it's just the size of the book. All right. So that's how our Old Testament is broken up. The New Testament is broken up similarly. Uh, you have the Gospels, which are the first four books. Then you have Acts, you have Paul's letters, and you have letters to other churches, and you have prophecy, right? All this is so elementary, isn't it? Good. I hope that's elementary to you because that's not really where we're headed. I just wanted to give you that. So if you've never been exposed to a Bible, you don't understand why there's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and New Testament. You didn't know how many books were in the Bible. You didn't know these things. Now at least you've been exposed to that. 
Uh, and the end books of the New Testament are prophecy, right? Looking at the Peters, looking at, looking at Jude, looking at Revelation. All of them are kind of prophecy books or letters to churches about prophecy. So the New Testament, we got a lot of Paul's writing in there as well. But now I want to walk us through what we would do if we were to actually study the Bible. So we know how it's broken up. And that's going to help us because the Old Testament's written in what language primarily? Hebrew. How many are Hebrew scholars? How many have taken more than one Hebrew class? Right? None of us. Well, I have. So it's one person, right? So Hebrew. We're not language specialists, right? We don't know Hebrew off the top of our head. And truth be told, I've forgotten more Hebrew than I ever learned, okay? So I don't remember much Hebrew anymore. I use tools to find out what the Hebrew says. The New Testament is written primarily in what language? Greek. Now, isn't it awesome that God in his wisdom knew that he would need two languages that were dead so they wouldn't change, so the meanings of words wouldn't change, so the language wouldn't change to preserve his word in. Now let me show you how the English language has changed. Imagine today going to George Washington and asking to take a selfie with him. Hey George, can we get a selfie? Ask him what a cell phone is. Tell him you're going to fly in a jet around the world. These words did not exist when George Washington was president of the United States of America. Guess what the English language is continually doing? It's continually changing. If something is cool, what is it? You say, I can't define that because I need a text. I need a context. In, in January, the third week in Minnesota, it's cool to be here. Right? It's cold. It's cool to be in Minnesota in the middle of July when it's only 70-something degrees and everywhere else is 100 and bazillion degrees. What does that mean? Different, different meaning? It means it's awesome to be here. It's great to be here. It's, it's cool to be here. The English language is a language that deceives us often. Right? It's a language that is perpetually moving as well. There used to be a time when a conversation was your lifestyle. King James Version uses that word that way. Let your conversation be such as honoring to God. The conversation of your life, meaning your lifestyle, not just what you speak, but how you act. Today, you say the word conversation, what's the one thing you think of? I had a conversation with somebody. What did I actually do? You don't really know. I could have texted them. I could have called them. I could have emailed them. I could have stood there and actually face-to-face conversed with them. But I had a conversation with them. Nowhere in your mind would you think, oh, he's talking about they compared their lifestyles. You would never do that. Because our language is constantly in flux and changing today. So God in his sovereignty, God in his foreknowledge, God in his preservation understood that his word would need to be locked in in languages that don't change. You know what we don't argue about today? What Hebrew, what biblical Hebrew says. You know what we don't argue about today? What the Greek meaning of words is. They are fixed. They are in lexicons. They're in dictionaries. They're in things that we can go to at different times in different places and we can get the definition and know exactly what the words mean. 
So I want to give you some of the tools that we use, or I use, pastors use, to be able to discern some of this. Now, I'm going to confess to you, I'm old enough that I've done it both ways, okay? I'm old enough that we didn't have Bible software when I started in ministry. Well, we did, but it was like, it was like using DOS, okay? It was faster to use your Bible than the computer could process. Now, in my lifetime, I've got Bible software that can do research faster than I could ever imagine. And I can do a word study in about three minutes, what used to take me three hours, okay? So things have changed in my lifetime of ministry. You're thinking, how old are you, Pastor Joe? I'm 44, for all wondering. The perfect number of double-doubles, right? It's a double-double of a double-double. I'm 44. I got lots of gray hair because of you guys. Um, ministry, I mean, ministry, ministry. And I have kids. So one caused it to fall out, the other caused it to turn gray. I'll let you figure out which is which. But we're going to talk about the tools that we use in ministry. Now, one of the tools that everybody loves to run to right away. Now, remember, I told you last week, if you're going to have a Bible study habit, read the same text over and over and over again, right? Take a text, read it for 30 days, know the text well. So none of these are a substitute for the initial point. If you're going to study the Bible, you got to start with the Bible, studying the Bible. If you don't know what it says, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, okay? So you need to know what the Bible says. You need to study. You need to mine it out. You need to create that Bible habit. But now, once you've gone to the Bible, once you've read the Bible, and now you say, now I want to know what some of the meanings are, right? I need to understand some of the background, what's going on. So everyone's number one favorite tool to use post-Bible study is what? The commentary, right? The big book of books. It used to be that way. I have some commentaries in my office that take up multiple shelves. Uh, today I have them in digital form. And uh, I just, these are awesome because you look up a passage of scripture, you read what it says, it gives you the background, it gives you the timing, gives you an outline, gives you, it's like the real lazy way of preparing Sunday school, right? Go to somebody else's outline, swipe their outline, give it, you're good to go. But the commentaries are great because if you are finding new revelation that nobody else has ever found in that text, there's probably a good chance there's a reason it's all new. You're reading into something that's not there. So commentaries are good checkpoints, if you will, to make sure that you're interpreting things the way that you think you are. So commentaries are great. Albert Barnes is an old, Barnes Notes is an old school one that a lot of people use. Uh, New Testament commentaries, Old Testament commentaries, they're all over the place. So they're often written verse by verse, and they give you a great outline of what a passage says. Next, we have what we call the lexicon. Now, the lexicon is kind of fun uh, because most of the time you either need to know a Strong's number to use it, or you've, all got, you've got to have some command of the original language. You've got to look up the Greek word. Um, sometime we'll take a Strong's concordance, and I'll, I'll teach you how you can do word studies right out of a Strong's concordance. Uh, you can do a Greek and Hebrew word study out of there just as easy. Why would you need to know that today? I don't know. It's easier to Google it. But uh, if you ever want to do a word study out of a book, you can do it out of a Strong's Concordance. It's how we used to do it. But if you have a Strong's number or you know the alphabet, the Greek or Hebrew word you're trying to find, lexicons are great because they give you the definition. And many times it gives you the definition with a chapter and verse and book underneath it, which actually gives you how the word is translated in your verse specifically. 
Uh, so lexicons are handy. The third one is, well, the concordance. How many ever use a concordance? Right? This is pretty self-explanatory. I just mentioned a strong concordance. This is a book that contains all the words in the Bible and it gives you a reference for every time that word is used in the Bible. So if you wanted to look up the word uh, sin, harmatos in the Greek, right? If you wanted to look that word up, then you would look up sin and it would give you every place in the Bible the word sin is used. If you wanted to look up sinful, you look up sinful and it gives you every place the word sinful is used. So Strong's is a good concordance. There are others as well. Next is a good dictionary. Why do you need a dictionary when studying scripture? What I already tell you the English language does. Changes. So if you're using a King James Bible and you're trying to figure out what the word means today, you're going to struggle a little bit with some of those. Because Elizabethan English is not modern day English. But however, the word that you find translated is what your word in your King James actually means. So, you know, it's good to have a dictionary because it helps us to define the words that are there, and also tells you how to pronounce them if you know how to read all the accent marks. Next, and this is archaic, but I left it for some of us older folk. You know, there was the old school encyclopedia, right? If you wanted to learn about Israel, what would you do? You pull the encyclopedia down, you open the encyclopedia, you looked at Israel, and you found a map, and you were like, oh, this is what, right? I told you, this is archaic. Now I'm going to give you the other side, all right? We're going to give you the digital too. So uh, the, the fifth thing is there's encyclopedias and uh, gives you a brief overview. Now, let me give you some of the digital helps today. This is, where, this is where I live, okay? I don't use many of these methods anymore. I shifted away from them. I like Google. I like, I use Logos. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Uh, but I actually use a multitude of different Bible programs depending on what I'm doing. And I wanna share that with you today, what we're gonna do. First one is Accordance. How many ever heard of this software, Accordance? Go to accordance.com. It is the rival to Lagos, the program that I use. It was designed for seminary professors, pastors, missionaries, people that are in vocational ministry. Accordancebible.com uh, Accordance is their website. It's a great Bible software. I don't knock it, it's just not what I, I grew up with or I, I used all along. But it does all kinds of things. It does word studies. It does uh, preaching manuals. It's got extra books you can add. You can explore biblical Greek, Hebrew, Dead Sea Scrolls, church fathers, all kinds of stuff. Next one is Crosswire. Crosswire.org is their site slash sword. And uh, Crosswire is another Bible software that's very practical. It's got a faster search engine than uh, Accordance and Lagos have, uh, just because it's not as a big of a program. Uh, it's part of the S.W.O.R.D. project. Crosswire Bible Society is also a resource uh, to other Christian organizations, and they really try to get Bible software into people's hands who can't afford the big ones, okay? So Crosswire is a good one to go for. This next one I use quite a bit uh, when I'm just wanting to cut and paste scripture, or I'm just wanting to look up scripture, or I just want to read. I don't want all the, all the extra foo-foo that comes with the Bible software. I just want to read the digital text, and that's eSword. eSword.net uh, is their website. And eSword uh, was, actually came to be when I was in seminary or college. And uh, it's a very old Windows style. So if you ever used old Windows, um, like XP, no, it'd be older than that even. 
I don't know, old Windows style uh, format. You look at it and you can tell it's pretty dated software. I like to use it and all the resources on it are free. You can download a ton of translations. You can get Hebrew, you can get Greek, you can do word studies, you can get concordances, you can get lexicons, everything. All the stuff on eSword is free. Uh, so I appreciate there's, I think it was founded in 2000 is when it was founded. Uh, next is Lagos. Lagos is one, this is the one I use. It's the one that uh, actually, when you're watching the, the presentation right now that you're seeing, the slides on the screen is Lagos. Uh, it's doing it through Proclaim software, but my Lagos, uh, I can actually run the screens from my tablet. I can do all my research in Lagos. I actually type my sermons in Lagos. I do all my research there. It's kind of a one trick pony. However, Lagos is one of the largest search engines for biblical things, and you need a gaming computer to run it uh, the proper way. It's a, it's a huge program. It's data laborious. Uh, however, if I want to do a word search and I want to search seven different words at the same time, it will not only search all seven words, but will find every time that word occurs in any book in my library in which I have over 56,000 books. So imagine me standing in my office, staring at the wall, trying to figure out what book to grab versus I type in repentance and I have every, every mention of repentance in my software is available to me. Now, what's the problem with that? Too much, right? So eSword, remember that one? There's a reason I have eSword as well. I just wanna look something up real quick. eSword, I go there, simple, easy, generic. I got the answer. Lagos, if I wanna know how many times it was used in the Apocrypha, how many times it was used in Koine Greek, and how many times it was used in secular Greek, I can give you those stats. I can give you diagrams of verses. Uh, it's a huge program. This next one, probably a lot of you have on your phone, olivetree.com. Anybody have Olive Tree on their phone? Yep. This one's a great Bible software. You know, for your phone, it's an app. It's also a website. You can go to both. Uh, you can actually do uh, reading plans in there. I think Olive Tree reads to you as well on your phone. Uh, great resource for having the Bible on your phone, follow along. If you want to bring that to church or do a Bible study, Olive Tree is a great app. Um, next one, Bible Analyzer. Uh, I don't have any exposure to this one. I know some pastors use this one. So I thought I'd mention it, but there are way better ones, I think, out there than this one. But if you like that, that's fine. This one is a dying one, but the Word Search Bible, this one's no longer supported, so it's kind of frozen in time. It's not going to get any more updates, but Word Search Bible is there as well. And then this one probably is one that you're more familiar with than any of them, the Version Bible. How many have that app on your phone? Right? This is another one. If you don't have Olive Tree, you're a Version person usually. And this one's found at Bible.com, but you can download it in the App Store. Has over 500 different languages, has videos, uh, has daily devotionals, and uh, I think you can download stuff. You can even pay to download stuff into your phone if you want that. So we have today more resources for studying the Bible than any generation that's ever lived on the planet Earth. I mean, short of Jesus Christ walking with us in the flesh, uh, we have more access to his word than any generation that's ever lived. Yet, you know, I gave you the statistic that, a couple weeks ago, didn't I? Over 60% of the people n never read the Bible. They don't have time for it. So all these resources are great only if you did the first step. What was the first step? 
Read the Bible, right? Read a passage of scripture and try to mine out the truths in it. However, there are all kinds of ways that you can study the Bible and you mine it out. For me, if you want to know what I use, I use a combination of version. I use the app version on my, on my phone. Actually, I think I have four. I don't have my phone on me. I have four different apps I use for Bible uh, on my phone. Lagos is one, version's one, Olive Tree is one, and then there's another one. I think just Bible, I think it's called. Uh, I use those four, and then uh, for computer, I use eSword and Lagos. So if you ever want to know how I build my sermons, what research, um, and I have the silver edition of Lagos, so you can look that up. It's expensive. Um, I bought it over many decades now. So let's talk about, let's transition now that you have kind of the resources where you can find tools to study the Bible. Let's talk about this topic. Why are there so many Bibles? Why in the world? I mean, we can start throwing out acrostics, right? NASB, NIV, ESV, C, C, uh, let's see, what is it now? CSV, uh, NWVB. There's you know what? There's so many different acrostics. NIV, HCSB. Um, what else is out there? N- yeah, NKGV, um, NLV. Uh, all, all kinds of different acrostics we throw out there, right? What is the difference in these? And why do we have so many different translations? Why can't we just have one translation? That's the word of God. That settles it. Done, right? You say, well, we had that. We had King James. Well, I think we're in the ninth or tenth revision of the King James right now in our English language too. So why so many translations? Why is it, how, how in the world do we get the translations? Well, I want to tell you there's three categories of translation that's alive, that, that's in the world today. I wish Isaiah Peterson was here because he could teach us better than me. Um, but there are three methods of translation. One is word for word, okay? I'll give you the theological names here in a minute. One of them's word for word, one of them's thought for thought, and the other's a paraphrase. Now, which is the most accurate? Well, it depends. It depends. That's the problem. Do you want readability or do you want accuracy? Do you want it to be so accurate you can't read it? Or do you want it to be so readable that it's not accurate? Because in translation, you can't bring everything across. Imagine translating in Spanish, he hit the ball a mile. Now, if you were to translate that straight up, how far did he hit the ball? 5,280 feet. How many have seen it hit that far? We know that to be an English what? Idiom. Okay? What happens when you run into a Hebrew idiom? What happens when you run into a Greek idiom? His heart became as stone. Did his heart actually petrify inside his body? No. God hardened his heart. Does that mean his heart became stone and got hard and and didn't beat anymore? No, Pharaoh's heart continued to beat. But what happened was he turned off, spiritually speaking, and rejected God's decision. How How do you translate that? This is what translators run into. And in every language, in every place, as they're translating scripture, they're going back to the original Hebrew and Greek, and they're trying to bring that back forward, right? So we can read it. So there's three translation methods, word for word, thought for thought, 
and paraphrase. So let's dig into these a little bit and I'll tell you which translations go with which group. All right, to try to help you out a little bit in understanding how the Bible works. So the first group is what we call the formal equivalent or you might hear the natural equivalent, okay? Naturally speaking or formally equivalent, uh, we're saying the same thing. So I, I've used John 1.1 before in here. Enarche halagon, hathion, hathion halagon. That's Greek, okay? Enarche means what? In beginnings. Halagon, the word. Hathion, the God. With a chi in the middle. So the word and the God. And then you have hathion halagon, the God and the word. So if you translate John 1.1 straight up from the Greek, you get in beginnings, the word, the God, the God, the word. Right? How do we translate it? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word... Where'd you get all the extra words from? You went for readability over accuracy. Now, is it still accurate as John 1, 1, how we quoted it? Yes. Is it more readable that way? Yes. And you know what? There's a translation for that. And a style of translation. So when we're going for formal equivalent or natural equivalent, this is what we're shooting for. Readability and accuracy. Okay, accuracy above readability sometimes. If you've ever had a New American Standard Bible and tried to read Proverbs and Psalms, you've had a great time trying to figure out what in the world those verses are saying. Because guess what they went for? Word, order, and accuracy over readability. So sometimes you've got to read two verses before you find your subject. And sometimes your subject is behind your adverbs. And you've got to rearrange the sentence and be like, oh, that's what it's saying. If you ever use New American Standard in the Old Testament. So uh, they should be up here on this one too. I don't know what happened to the backside of my, my comma here. But King James, New King James, English Standard Version. Um, New American Standard would also really technically be in this group as well. Uh, these are ones that they're going for accuracy over readability. Okay, but they are readable. But they're not as readable as some other translations would be. But if you want to do a theological study of the Bible, you want to mine a word, you want to mine uh, a thought, you want to try to figure out what a verse says, you need one of these translations to be able to do that. Because what we're going to show you in the next translations, they're going to start moving away from word-for-word -word translation, and they're going to begin interpreting Scripture for you. So these versions, Scripture's not interpreted. It's really just laid out there for you. Here's the Greek word, here's the meaning, here's the Hebrew word, here's the meaning. You try to figure out how it all works out together. By the way, these are also some of the hardest ones to memorize. King James, New King James, ESV. Why? Because they give up readability for accuracy. However, then you have the thought-for-thought -thought equivalent or the functional equivalent. We're going for functionality here, we're not going for accuracy, Okay. We want you to be able to think through the book. We want it to be readable. We want it to be understandable. We want it to be memorable. We want it to sound like people talk today. Okay? So that's the goal of this type of translation work. This is your new international version, new living. Uh, this is your Holman Christian Study Bible. This is your uh, Christian, what is it, CSV? Christian Standard? I think Christian Standard Version. Uh, the Southern Baptist Version right now that's out there that they're continually to tweak on. They're going for readability over the word-for-word -word translation.
Now, is it wrong to do that? No, it's not wrong at all because we want people to be able to what? Read the Bible. We want them to understand the Bible. If they have a Bible they don't understand, what good is it? Are they going to read it? No. So there's nothing wrong with these translations, but what are the downfalls of this translate, these translations? If you want to study a word and know where it's used in the entire Bible, guess what these can't do? They're not going to give you the word study because the words may be there, but they're not in your translation. So they give up some of the study ability for readability. Now, does that make them not accurate? Well, that's, that, that's up to people's arguments, right? That, that's up for debate, and I can leave that up for debate. However, I will tell you this. If you try to do a Greek word study out of these, or a Hebrew word study out of these translations versus the first ones, you'll come up woefully short. You're going to miss passages because of the way translation works. Now, the next group, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one because I don't use them. I have no purpose for them. And to me, they, this is where we get a lot of doctrinal errancy, okay? Uh, not inerrancy, errancy, where error is, is put in there. And that is this, paraphrase, or dynamic equivalent, all right? I'm going to give you here in a minute passages of Scripture where they're laid out side by side, showing you the differences of these and how it gives up some of the emphasis. But the message, good news, uh, I can't even remember what the GWT was now off the top of my head. Um, good news translation, God's word translation, contemporary English version. Uh, these are all dynamic equivalents. They're gonna, they're gonna give you a scripture, they're gonna give you some of the meaning, but they're not really, a, it's an interpretation, not a translation. There's not much translating going on here. It's more of, here's what the Bible says, and here are some of the topics of it, but it doesn't really give it. And if you try to do a theological study out of these, you will miss major doctrines. You're going to totally, totally miss them uh, in, in trying to figure it out. So let's, let's, let's put feet to the water here. Take your Bible and go to Colossians 2. Take your Bible and go to Colossians 2. I'm going to lay out all three categories, and we're going to look at the verses side by side. And uh, whatever translation you brought with you, if one of yours falls under a different area, then, then that's fine. Uh, I'm not going to think you're heretical or anything. Um, but I just want you to know why we have the translations we have today and what the limitations for each of them are. Colossians 2.9, if you get a King James, it says this, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In who? Jesus, right? So we're talking about Jesus here. In Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2.9, the ESV says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay? And then the New American Standard says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now when you put all those together, what, what theology are you getting out of there? Jesus is God in the flesh, right? He is God in man form. Uh, Jesus is the expressed image of the Father. Uh, so we can get that. And all the, all the translations basically say the same thing. Word order is a little different, little modern words uh, used, but all of them really say the same thing. Uh, the only thing that's unfortunate in the ESV, they didn't capitalize deity, um, but we know that it's talking about God because of context anyway. So they didn't feel like they had to emphasize that there. Now, let's jump down to the next translation set. Let's go for the thought-for-thought thought translations. So NIV says, For in Christ all the fullness 
of the deity it lives in bodily form. Okay? New living, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. CSV, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Now, is there a lot of difference there? Not a lot, but there are differences. We have to admit, um, is, is the fullness of Christ, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in the human body. Okay. In bodily form, okay. So you can see it gives up some of the words, but it gives the thoughts. The thoughts are there. We got the translation. Now let's move into the paraphrases. Watch this. The good news translation. For the full content of divine nature lives in Christ in his humanity. Who's the divine nature? Mother Earth? We lost something here. We, we gave up something big time. C.E.V., God lives fully in Christ. Only when he's in heaven, in bodily form. When he was a man, not God. We're giving up stuff. GWT, all of God lives in Christ's body. So where does Christ not live then? Or where does God not live? Outside of Christ's body. We're, we're giving away things. You say, well, Pastor Joe, you're nitpicking. Yeah. We're talking about the preserved word of God. Can we go back to the Greek and Hebrew and show where things are missing in these verses? Yes. Even in the second set, can we see where things have changed? Theologically speaking, the answer is yes. So why do we have all the translations today? Because some are there because they're word for word accurate. Some are there for thought for thought. Now, if you read those, have you gotten any major doctrinal heresy just by reading them? No. But if you try to study out of it, what's going to happen? It's going to happen at some point. You're going to get doctrinal, er uh, doctrinal variants out of there. So you say, Pastor Joe, you're really nitpicking here. Well, my reason for sharing this with you is that this. You find a translation that you can read, you can understand, and that you'll read every day. That's the goal. There's not one Bible out there that I'm going to tell you is the only translation for all humankind in all time and all places because there's not. Now, are there some that have been better than others over time? Yeah. But are there newer translations that are more accurate when it comes to English today? Yes. Does that mean the old ones are bad? No. It just means you're going to need more study tools to use the old ones. Because when you tell somebody Jesus is the propitiation for your sin, what in the world are you talking about? Right? If you say that in the fullness, the fullness of all of God dwells in Christ bodily, that's great. What is the fullness of God, though? What does the word fullness mean? If you are the full, <laughs> if all your fullness is present with us today, what is it? Is that everything you possess or is it just who you are, your person, your persona? So three methods of translation, word for word, thought for thought, paraphrase. God has given us the preserved in frozen languages, Hebrew and Greek. Praise the Lord for that, right? Because we can go back, we know what the word of God is. We know what the words are. We can study in the original languages exactly what the Bible is. So when we get into English and we run into, I presented you nine different translations today. There are 
scores of translations out there that you can get into. I showed you nine. You can go and you can find out which ones are the most accurate. We can find that out today. Matter of fact, there's people who have already done the work for you, so you don't even have to do that part. You just have to trust the research. Now, what does that mean for me? Well, my personal preference, what I personally use, what I grew up on is King James Version, okay? I grew up on King James. I memorized King James. Today, I, I, I use King James, but I don't use it as primary. I use it as a check system. And uh, today, I use ESV, English Standard. That's what I preach out of. That's what I teach out of. But I have nothing wrong with the King James. I like the King James. But having studied Hebrew and Greek over 21 years now, um, or actually longer than that, but in full-time ministry, 21 years now, um, when I get done doing the word study and I open up the ESV to see what it says, guess what word I find? The word I just spent 20 minutes researching. So I like the ESV uh, challenges sometimes. Watch a guy on TV that teaches out of a King James, listen to him to find all the Greek words, and then open your SV and, and see what he already told you. It's already there, done for you. Um, I love the ESV because you can buy an ESV with the Strong's numbers in it, because all the numbers of Strong works with the ESV Bible, and you can use the Strong's concordance with an ESV. Can't do that with the New International, can't do that with other translations, but you can with the ESV. Uh, so I like it. Does the ESV have its readability issues? Yeah, it does. There's places where it's messed up, just like every translation trying to translate. Is it too wordy in some areas? Yes. Is it not wordy enough in other areas? Yes. Is it an accurate translation of what God convened to man? And the answer is yes. That's why I use it. So, you know, I like the readability of it. I like that it uses words that we understand. We don't have to define words for hours on end as we preach, but we can read a passage and you know what it says. So, and it is a word-for-word -word translation of the Bible, not a thought-for-thought. Thought. Now, if you use NIV, there's nothing wrong with NIV. People get saved out of NIV. The God's Word is still in the NIV. It's all there. But if you're trying to study out of an NIV, you're going to come up and short in some areas. It's just going to happen. And you're going to run into holes. You're going to run into verse variances. You're going to run into some areas where people took liberty and said, you know what, uh, that... that, that that conveys this thought. And you're going to get the thought over, over the word for word. And if you're using a paraphrase, I encourage you to stop and use something different. Okay? Because it is going to hurt you in the long run. It isn't that much harder to switch to one of the more accurate versions and actually have word for word or thought for thought over somebody's opinion. How many have ever used an Amplified Bible? All right? Amplified, what its goal is, okay, is not readability. You understand that if you ever used one. It is not readability. But what it is trying to do is it's trying to convey how the word was used in every circumstance in the Bible. So it's a word study all by itself. Okay? So, you know, Jesus went to Jerusalem. Well, how did he get there? Well, he walked, hopped, skipped, jumped, drove his car, flew an airplane. The idea is he got there, right? Somehow he went to Jerusalem. Uh, the Amplified just gives you all the words meanings in one shot. And then you've got to figure out which one the most accurately fits in that verse. Uh, nothing wrong with that translation either. It's, it's a great way to do a word study without all the work of a word study. So in the end, Pastor Joe, what do I need to know from this? Number one, the Bible you hold in your hands is the Word of God. Okay? Whether it's ESV, New King James, King James, you know what? 
ESV, King James, New King James all come from the Texas Receptus. What is that? That's a place in Texas, isn't it? No. It's a Greek document that comes out of the Byzantine family of text out of Constantinople, Turkey. Okay? Then, their New International Version, New American Standard, all come from United Bible Society 4th Edition text. Where's that one founded? Alexandria, Egypt. So the Greek text that were found in the Alexandrian Library is where you get New American Standard, NIV, some of these other translations. Vaticanus. Anybody know where that one came from? The Vatican. The Greek translation of the Bible that the Vatican had in Rome. And when scholars take the Rome version, Vaticanus, when they take the Byzantine text, which, by the way, was the Eastern Roman Empire capital. They take the Byzantine text and then they take the Alexandrian text and they lay them side by side. Do you know what Greek variance there is between the three documents? One half of one page of a Greek New Testament. That's how well God preserved his language. And out of that one half of one page, there is no doctrinal variance. Majority of the changes is spelling and word order. And in Greek, word order doesn't matter. It's all endings and prefixes. So when you hold the New Testament of your Bible, you have an accuracy down to less than one half of one page of a Greek New Testament in variance among thousands of documents in three different cities. Now tell me that's not accurate. We can't even play the telephone game in here and get that accuracy. Right? Hebrew is even tighter. Not looser, tighter. Because guess how many Hebrew texts we have? There's not three different, three different cities we pull it from. There's one group of text. Masoretic text. So we have very accurate original documents. We have very accurate that go way back in time to almost, well, not the Old Testament, but the New Testament goes almost back to the time of Christ. And when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, guess what we also found? One of the oldest translations of what book? Isaiah, Old Testament, Hebrew. And it matched all the documents that we had. So we have an incredible God who has preserved his word. And when you hold these modern day translations, you can be sure that the doctrines, the meanings, the interpretations, you can find what the original says in an English translation today. But you need to know why the translation exists. Is it readability? Is it accuracy? Or is it somebody's thoughts? And that matters, doesn't it? So read the Bible you have, trust the Bible you have, get into the Bible you have. And, I, and, and next week, I didn't even want to preach this message. I told Sunday school that today. These are my least favorite messages to preach, topicals. But I want to get into the study of Jude with you. And as we go word for word through the book, as we go thought for thought through the book, I think you're going to find, I don't think, you will find how awesomely preserved God's word is even in chapters and in, in books inside this book and how it'll refer to other things that happen in the Bible. And when you go look at those things and plug it back into context, you're like, wow, how did God, 2,000 years before it ever happened, how did God know that that was going to be used here? And God does that all throughout his book. So I hope that you get a hunger and thirst for righteousness. I hope you get a hunger and thirst to feed on God's word. And, and I want you to know the Bible you hold in your hands today is an accurate translation of God's word. And don't let anybody undermine that. Okay, 
Don't let anybody undermine the thought that, that you don't have the word of God today. We can't trust the word. Because I guarantee it, all nine of the translations I put on that screen all have the gospel in them. All nine of the translations up there, I can lead somebody to Jesus Christ out of that Bible. And if you really trust the Bible, then faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? And if somebody gets saved out of it, then what must it be? It's the truth. And what does the truth do? The truth will... That's what God's Word says. So we preach truth. We teach truth. But I, want you, I don't want to lie to you in the same time and say, well, if you got an NIV, you don't have the Bible. No, you have the Bible. But understand what you have in the Bible. You have a readable document that gives up accuracy to give you readability. So is that going to open the door for some things to slip out? Yes. But if you go back to the originals, guess what you find out? What the Bible actually says. So even though there might be some deficiencies in it, it's fine. You can do the work. You can show yourself approved unto God. A workman needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing what? The word of truth. And the truth is what we're looking for. So I hope that encourages you. So whatever translation you have, if you're God-inspired, do you have King James or ESV? No, I'm kidding. Use the translation you have. Read the Bible you have. I guarantee you, whatever translation you have right now, if you read it, you're already light years ahead of people who don't. Because God can work through that. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. I hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against God. So study your Bible, love your Bible, read your Bible, and understand how it was written, why it was written, how it was translated, why it was translated that way. And when you know those things, now you're free to study it. You're free to dig into it. You're free to chase words. You're free to study and find out what God wants for your life. Because he does tell us what he wants for your life in this book. And I love this book. I've been studying for 20 years and there's so many things I have, well, more than 20 years, 40 years. But there's so many things in here I still love researching, studying, digging out, mining out. And uh, since most of you have never read the book of Jude, because I asked a few weeks ago, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to opening up a whole new book that's going to be apropos to where you live. So, good? I told you, it's not the type of sermon I like. I don't even know how to close this one. It's that weird. But you know what? The word can be trusted. Amen? Amen. And that's what matters. That's what we learned this morning. So let's pray together. And this week, I want to challenge you, read the book of Jude. If you haven't done it yet, if you've been resisting and fighting me, because like, Pastor Joe, that's stupid to read the book 30 times. Well, read it seven, the number of perfection, okay? Read it seven and come back next Sunday ready to learn. Because we're going to take just the first two verses and, and spend three hours. I, no, I'm kidding. We're going to spend time tearing apart just the first two verses. And there's so much in those two verses alone that you're going to see and you're going to be like, how come I never saw that before? I guarantee you'll say that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that we can know it, we can follow it. I thank you for the practical tools that we have in our day and age to go along with it, Father. Back in the early church, they had to sit there and just listen to the verse, listen to the letter be read to them and know that it was the word of God. Today, we have 66 books that validate each other that they are the word of God. We can trust the word of God. We can go back into two languages that have been preserved for us today in Hebrew and Greek. And we can see the original languages that the Bible was given in so we can know what the interpretation of the scriptures are. And Father, I thank you for the linguists and the theologians today who, who take even languages that don't have the word of God today 
And they use that Greek and they use that Hebrew and they translate directly into those languages today so that even people today who don't have the written word of God are able to have the word of God in their own native tongue, in their own languages. And Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who you made flesh and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And Lord, we know that your word is truth. We know that Jesus Christ is the expressed image of your word. And he is the word. He is the creator of the universe and all things that are. And Father, we know that Jesus Christ is the means by which we get salvation. For there's no other way given among men whereby we must be saved, but through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Father, there's somebody here this morning who doesn't know what the Bible teaches when it comes to the main character, Jesus Christ of the Bible. I pray, Father, that if they don't get anything else, they get two things out of the message. Number one, the Bible is truth and it is accurate and it is your word. And number two, that Jesus Christ's word teaches that you love the world so much, Father, that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, not be eternally separated from you, but they should have everlasting life. And Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here who's never received you as Savior, that Lord, we would, they would give us the privilege of opening your word and showing them from your word what the Bible says about salvation. It is a gift of God to eternal life. It is Jesus Christ paying the price for us, for sin that we, did, that we earned. For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Father, I pray that we would confess with our mouth and believe in our heart the Lord Jesus Christ and we can be saved. For the Christians that are here, Father, I pray that we would know our Bible so well that we're able to use it and share it with those that need to hear the hope and the truth in our time period in which we live. There are so many looking for truth, so many looking for hope today. And Lord, we have both in your word. So help us to be approved workmen, not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And Lord, thank you for the privilege of worshiping you on this Father's Day. And Father, I pray for all the fathers out there. I pray, Lord, that they would emulate you. I pray, Father, that we would love our families even when they're unlovable, just like you loved us when we were unlovable. I pray, Father, we provide as you provide. I pray that we would protect as you protect. And Father, I pray that we would give our lives just as you gave yourself for us, that we could have eternal life. And Lord, I thank you. I pray that the fathers and dads in this room would be the spiritual leaders of their families. To your glory. In your name we pray. All God's people said. Amen.